Good morning and a happy Tuesday to you folks. It is a gorgeous day outside and I know you're going to have a gorgeous day today. In fact, what I want you to do is hit stop right now because if you just woke up, hit stop because today I want you to create before you consume. Maybe do it tomorrow because you're already the day's already started. So what the heck, just do it tomorrow. Create before you consume. That means when you get up in the morning, don't grab your phone right away. Just go create something. Might be your breakfast, might be a walk, it might be writing in a journal, whatever it might be. Create something. Get your brain creating instead of consuming right away in the morning. I'm telling you, if you do that, you are going to have a new outlook on life and yourself. You are going to become a creator rather than a consumer because you were born an original. So do not die a carbon copy. Now let's get this Tuesday started, folks. Woohoo! It's time to play hard, work hard. Now let's play hard. Thank you for joining the Play Hard, Work Hard morning show here. Sterling is off. Thomas Cerro is joining us. We're going to do kind of another abbreviated version today. Kind of play hard, work hard together. We're going to have some fun, but at the same time, we're going to learn a little bit about Bitcoin. Of course, we had him on a few months ago. Bitcoin was about 30000 35000 Over the weekend, it hit 60000 So thank you very much for the tips on Bitcoin because I've doubled my investment in the last three months. And uh, Thomas Arrow, how you doing? I'm doing well, Jason. Thanks for having me on. So what's going on with Bitcoin? Why Why is it uh, the market reacting the way it is? And really, quite honestly, it's it's probably close to doubled in the last three months, at least uh, probably the peaks it has. But uh, what's going on with Bitcoin? Yeah, I think there's two things going on. Uh, right now, I think the adoption that's taking place is just a result of the sentiment that's that's going on right now with all the money printing that's taking place all throughout the world, all the stimulus and kind of the rise in, in inflation, whether people want to admit it or not. I think we've all seen the reports of, you know, hard goods uh, and materials skyrocketing. Um, and so it's it's a form of digital gold in that sense. So a lot of folks who are running from inflation to more of a deflationary uh, place to store their value are going to Bitcoin and it's become very popular in that sense. The the other big component that has driven the price up and you know the sentiment itself is now publicly traded companies who have large treasuries like you know Tesla, MicroStrategy, Square, um, I think Mass Mutual, a bunch of other publicly traded companies have have realized that their their cash treasuries of hundreds of millions of dollars and in some cases billions or tens of billions of dollars is, is actually like melting away if they just keep it in the bank. So this was kind of a, this was more of like a black swan event because you had Tesla buy one and a half billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, I think at like forty five thousand dollars. So you were you beat you beat Elon to the punch on Bitcoin, Jason. So congrats on that. 
Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm an early adapter, I guess. A little late to the party on this. I was going to buy it a few years ago, but my big thing with Bitcoin back in the day, and I say that, and this is like two, three years ago, right? Because I, I would go to these early Bitcoin meetings, you know, that were organically popping up around communities because I needed to find out what it was. And I, I understood the theory behind it, but my thing was until like Amazon started taking Bitcoin or they had ATMs. And, but now with the Cash App and these other apps that you have where you can just move money around, boy, it just seemed, it seemed like when the advent of that technology came, Bitcoin just really took off. I, I don't know if the two and two have anything to do with each other, but are you following me? Yeah, I mean, you know, Marty... Uh, ben, who's on our team, uh, you know, he, he does a lot of podcasts and stuff and such. He he's uh, he's done a really good job of articulating. There's two parts of Bitcoin. There's there's Bitcoin, the kind of currency, and so where it's got this deflationary 21 million cap, you know, uh, limit on all the Bitcoin that'll be created. So it does create create this like scarcity model. And I remember when I, you and I chatted one time, the light bulb went off. You're like, I. I didn't know that. And that kind of changed the game. That's one component. That's like the money aspect of Bitcoin and, you know, how the supply slowly kind of dwindles out to 21 million. The other component, which you just addressed, is Bitcoin, the monetary network. And so that monetary network is similar to what the it's basically money for the Internet. But it's how it's built. It's like the the same type of infrastructure that email was built on on the internet. It's the native money native money network for the internet. And so, uh, as mobile device adoption picks up, as our kids grow up and have their kids digitally, this is what they're used to. They're not used to that. That's how they send money around. And so, Bitcoin was made specifically for that use case. So I think it's just growing into the reality of what it is. It's like, you know, no one thought Amazon was going to be what Amazon is now. You just were some, you know, eclectic group selling books back in the day. And now look at them. Um, and what's, what's fascinating about it. If you think of the Amazon comparison, Amazon's main business and why that they are so profitable is they have this cloud computing business and this cloud computing business is what allows them because they run such amazing and they were the first to adopt this model they were this mar, this provides so much margin for the business that they can basically price everyone out um, on amazon.com and that's why they're able to offer the pricing that they do because they have a hundred billion dollar business that has 60 or 70 percent margins because they've got um, computing power in the cloud and so bitcoin really is computing power for money. That's what's really taking place. That's why when you have me on, we talk about Bitcoin mining. What is Bitcoin mining? All it's doing is providing the same type of computing power for the monetary network of Bitcoin. Does that make sense? It does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, I did want to ask you uh, a claim I made yesterday on the show. I said two things, because we got an email about Bitcoining, wondering how that works, you know, you know with oil and gas and so having you on, of course, explains that. So what I said, two things that you should know about Bitcoining. If, if you work in oil and gas and you just want to know the basics, you know, at a party type thing, just enough to get you by. And 
tell me if I'm right, wrong, or, you know, if there's other two things that maybe people should keep an eye on. But I said, number one is that it's very difficult to do south of the Mason-Dixon line. So do it north of the Mason-Dixon line, and it has to do with temperature. And number two, Russia went like all in on Bitcoin as a country with their oil and gas industry. So, I mean, they're like, they're like dedicating wells to Bitcoin and that sort of thing. So um, run with that a little bit, you know, just, you know, to tell me, you know, how important those two attributes are to the whole oil and gas Bitcoin world. And um, just kind of, you know, go from there, I guess. Yeah, no, those two points are, you know, the best thing about when people go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole is that there are different reasons that people end up thinking about someone posing a question about Bitcoin. There's all these different elements, right? There's this self-sovereignty kind of meme that's powerful where, you know, you replace the bank, which is pretty, pretty fascinating and kind of a dangerous opinion to have. And then and there's probably a dozen other more that you could have like kind of thrown out. And usually it's one of, and for you, obviously you being in North Dakota, you understanding, understanding like kind of what's happening there in terms of a, an industry that's developing for Bitcoin mining off of oil and gas resources. It's primarily because it's, it's very attractive from a climate perspective to do, to do this at scale. And so absolutely we're seeing other States adopt it. Uh, Wyoming is being very aggressive right now with courting Bitcoin miners, uh, primarily due to their reliance on oil and gas revenue for their, for their state's budget. And they are, they have been hit big time with, uh, Biden's, uh, federal, uh, uh, the federal lease bans that have taken place on their, on their land. So, um, yeah, you've got that component that's perfect for it. It's nice and cool. These machines generate a ton of heat, and it's very difficult to plop these containers or solutions down in the Permian Basin. So Bitcoin miners typically look for places, like you said, north of the Mesa-Dixon line. Uh, the, the geopolitical side of things is equally as fascinating. Up until about a year ago, uh, yeah, maybe about a year ago, 80% of the hash rate that's the computing power on the Bitcoin network was in China. And so there has been a dedicated um, push for U.S.-based miners to start mining at scale. And so we've got folks from, you know, mining off of hydroelectric dams, uh, basically finding waste energy sources. That's where big, large Bitcoin miners go, uh, where places that can't consume all the energy that is being produced and Bitcoin miners gravitate towards those areas because it's economically viable and there is a, a healthy amount of energy there. And so China had started the, you know, kind of the, the land rush when it came to Bitcoin mining. Now North America is making a hard push towards it, uh, primarily due to some of the innovation that's happening within the oil and gas space right now. And so that feeds into Russia adopting this, um, you know, other countries, I believe Turkey, there were some folks doing some stuff too. Uh, anyone who has natural energy that are energy sources that are in wasted areas, Bitcoin miners are going to flock to them. Now, I would argue that uh, anybody looking to invest, like, you know, you have large publicly traded companies who are looking to invest in mining operations, they're not going to go to Russia. Um, so, you know, the 
the, the focus is on building U.S. operations out at scale so people can put their, you know, uh, investments in areas that are, you know, a much more stable environment, I guess, in contrast. And for those people out there who are maybe a little bit more of a Bitcoin nerd or a cryptocurrency nerd, uh, I'm just kind of using Bitcoin as the Xerox, if you will, or the Kleenex. I think Bitcoin's got such a market on the uh, cryptocurrency vernacular that it's going to be applicable in the next question I have for you here. So when I see Bitcoin, because of the, you know, the, the, the monopoly they're really getting on the vernacular, for number one, it's easy to say and you can pronounce it. You start talking about Ethereum and all these different clever cryptocurrencies that other people try. And I, I look at them as more fads or they're going to get kind of ironed out a little bit. Bitcoin, I think, is going to stick around and, and may become you know, kind of the first global currency. Is is that kind of the direction where this is going, or is it already there? Oh, it's absolutely already there. It's, yeah, okay. In terms of global, global currency count, I think it's, you know, it's uh, uh, topped a number of world currencies, like Norway, a bunch of other uh, countries, it's already topped uh, in terms of that. So what's, what's really, I would say, fundamental to thinking about Bitcoin versus any other cryptocurrency is that Bitcoin by itself, A, was the first one, but B, is truly decentralized. I know that word gets thrown around a lot. It's more of like a buzzword, but it's completely distributed, which means there is no chairman of the board of Bitcoin. So you can have the same equipment monitoring the network that anybody else can have, that Exxon could have, that Fidelity could have, that any other large corporation can have. And so it truly... Uh, makes it a level playing field, and, and that's the power of it because any country can decide to to invest in infrastructure that supports the Bitcoin network. And so um, I think you're going to start, and this is where you were going with your question about Russia, is that, okay, well, what what does that mean? What If Russia's investing in, in mining infrastructure uh, to do this at scale, what does that mean for us? That means that we're going to respond to it. Uh, it's not going to, it won't help by just banning it, which that we're past the point of no return on that. So then you're going to see large scale uh, mining initiatives here in the United States off of stranded energy that will, that will compete with our countries that we compete with. Well, now that we have states country. acting like businesses, because they do, you know, they, they do it in, in a lot of different ways. Um, are you having any luck with states? You know, you mentioned Wyoming before. I don't know if you're actually talking about the state or you're just referring to companies there. I know in North Dakota, you are working with some private companies. So I don't know if you're actually working with the state. Um, Two-part question. Are you working with states because, you know, states and universities are acting like businesses? And number two, uh, are you have are you having any luck? Because a lot of times I've found, especially when it comes to um, smaller populated states, and in some aspects it might be a good old boy network, but other aspects it might be just that's their barber, that's their guy who cuts their lawn. So you know, once they have one person for whatever reason they have is because maybe it's the first one they found or maybe they pay, they're paid off or whatever it is, doesn't matter. 
a lot of times they just stick with the one person. We we ran into that a lot of times in North Dakota where they would send us to, you know, no matter what you came up with, they would have somebody that was kind of already doing that. And even though it wasn't it, wasn't it, it was kind of like that, so they had their guy or their girl or whatever. So um, you kind of have that. Are you finding either one that states are open to this or are you running any pitfalls like that, you know, where it's, centralized you mentioned decentralized so i'll attack you on the other side where maybe states um uh priorities become a little more centralized yeah absolutely yeah that's a that's a fair uh critique and i think you know marty wrote a uh kind of a an article i want to say about a week and a half ago and he talked about the upcoming or what he saw as a developing theme right now with states competing against each other for Bitcoin miners. And part of his thesis was some of the ongoing legislation, not only in North Dakota, with some uh, flare mitigation bills that are that are coming up with you know tax incentives uh, to, to producers to partake in this. Uh, Kentucky has offered tax incentives for people mining Bitcoin. And then Wyoming is doing something uh, as well around uh, wellhead pricing around Bitcoin. I think what will happen is the states that are most incentivized to do something in terms of actually getting something done are the ones who are going to make the most movement. So unfortunately, the states with the good old boy networks or the nepotism that's just baked in, they're going to get left behind. And there's just and, and and folks like myself won't waste our time in, in scenarios like that. And so I think the more forward-thinking states where it's easy to get things done are going to be the ones that are they're going to jump ahead. And then eventually, you know, some of these other states will follow, uh, just like they've done on a countless other. You know, I, I almost look in, uh, liken it to the business formation competition that's taken place between states. So you've got like Nevada, Wyoming, Delaware. I think there's a couple other ones where, you know, those are your desired choices to set up a corporation. And they competed hard on that kind of digital landscape to to attract businesses. I think the same thing will happen when it comes to uh, Bitcoin-related energy uh, projects. So if you're an operator, talk to me like I'm an operator, you know. I mean, that's, that's who your customer is, right? Absolutely. If, if you're an operator and you want to drill more oil and you don't want to deal with all of the complications that come with drilling oil when you want to drill oil, which means waiting on pipelines, dealing with flaring permits and kind of regulations on that side of things, you should contact us because we can essentially act as a bridge uh, when you're, you know, when this is happening right now with new producer or producers who are looking to reopen wells up uh, right now and are trying to time things perfectly in order to, to be, still maintain a profitable business where they contact us, we come in, we can, can consume that gas, we'll pay a, you know, a, a, a fair rate for that gas, and you can, you can get your oil out and make your money. So that's how we look out of a, a symbiotic relationship right now with the oil and gas community in North Dakota. How about, talk to me like I'm a state. Let's say you're a state. Um... You know, North Dakota, like I said, they're they're getting in all kinds of businesses, and now they're trying to tap into the legacy fund, where they want to give more of these uh, entrepreneurs and these young entrepreneurs that have been subsidized since college. Uh, well, it's a fair question. How can you teach entrepreneurship in college? That's like trying to teach somebody to sprint like Carl Lewis. 
I mean, you're either born with it or you're not. That's how yes, I look at it. Yeah, and you have to. You have. There's a fair amount of uh, trial and error, as as all of us who have been entrepreneurs uh, understand that it's involved. Well, what's happened in, in a lot of states is they've started these entrepreneur like majors and stuff, and so they've realized after they put these kids out into the into the real world, they actually didn't prepare them for the real world, and so they've been subsidizing them since they graduated college, and now in North Dakota, they're going after the legacy fund for that, and. I'm looking at like what you're doing. And that to me is what I thought the legacy fund, if they were going to do anything, was going to be for more uh, uh, environmental and energy efficiency. Because at the end of the day, what you're doing is environmental and it is energy efficient. And, and is, is, so my question is, is that have you guys been getting any, getting your little grubby fingers into the legacy fund too? <laughs> so. No, we've kind of stayed away from that. I mean, we're a small team. Uh, I think, you know, there's obviously, uh, there's an allure to engaging on that level. But in reality, I think as most entrepreneurs, um, like we, we can kind of see the future already and we don't have time to wait for governments to do what they're going to do. Um, we believe that if we provide, uh, you know, a really compelling narrative, uh, in public, which is what we do with the public kind of components of our of our company, we have a podcast uh, that you kind of inspired us to start, Jason. In terms of like fusing the world of Bitcoin and oil and gas, and so we talk to all kinds of folks. I know you're going to be joining us as a guest here in the next couple weeks as well to kind of talk about the. Um, and this is something that you instilled in me from very early on meeting you is the quality of life that is brought to small communities by oil and gas. And I got to witness that firsthand when I went to the Bakken barbecue last year. And um, it's it, from a narrative perspective, if you can tell that story with pictures and video and um, emotion, that's compelling. And so for us, that's we, we believe in Bitcoin providing the same type of quality of life that that experience got us that day and so uh th those are things that we're interested in doing and if if politicians get it cool if not they'll get it eventually but that's not we don't you know we're, we're not looking for lobbyists right now because that's what you're asking uh, no well it is i guess well I, I wasn't but i mean if you're hiring i'll take a look at it um yeah. <laughs> i'm just kidding i just know lobbyists make a ton of money just to go run meetings all day so um but you know, I'm I'm thinking of somebody like you know Governor Burgum. I think he might be open to listening to some other ideas on on other avenues with Bitcoin and and just the whole new digital marketplace. And the reason I say that, and I'll go back to the Legacy Fund for a second because that was built by oil and gas. Okay, that that was built 100%. by oil and gas. And there's a lot of special interests trying to tie their they're, you know, that's why I say grubby little fingers, you know, that sort of thing. But at the same time, if there's conversations to be had about building pipelines, which there are, using the legacy fund money, and if there's conversations about, you know, still continuing to subsidize entrepreneurs that have been subsidized for 10 years, well, I, I think that there's a legitimate conversation to say, okay, if we're going to be building this type of network, well, maybe we should look at actually building a global network 
to bring our entrepreneurs to the next level and bring our energy efficiency to the next level. I, I, I'm, I'm just saying it's a legitimate conversation. So is anybody having that conversation with the states anywhere? You yes. know, tax um, credits or it doesn't have to be legacy fund. I just, I just use that as an example. So you're in Wyoming, any, you know, anything like that or Colorado or anything? So there's some unique Colorado. Absolutely not. Um, Wyoming is a different animal uh, in, in that sense. Here's the thing that's taking place. Um, there are becoming Bitcoin advocates at uh, higher levels in government now. And so with Wyoming, uh, their newest senator, Senator Cynthia Lummis is not only a huge advocate for oil and gas for her state of Wyoming, but she is a, a very ardent Bitcoin supporter. And the, uh, I remember listening to an interview with her where she was, you know, because I'm always interested in like, how did these people even fall down this rabbit hole? Was she listening to Jason at Crude Life when she heard about it? You know, huh. those are things that I that go through my mind. And when she was giving the example, now uh, her son-in-law is uh, very involved with Bitcoin. So I'm sure she heard about it early on. But when it clicked, because a, a lot of us heard about it early on and it didn't click. So how did it click for her? Well, her background prior to becoming a senator was she was a state uh, treasurer for Wyoming. And she was responsible for Wyoming's permanent fund in making sure that it, you know, continued to, to grow and to appreciate. And so she was constantly looking for ways to store that value to make it into a positive outcome for the state's constituents. Because the out of all the states in terms of, if you think uh, uh, North Dakota relies on oil and gas. Wyoming is even more more so. They they talk about having a three legged stool that supports their economy: oil and gas, minerals, and then tourism. It's really one long leg, and then two shorter legs of that stool are you know are what really drives it. And for them, they're they. I would say that they're the most incentivized out of any of the states right now to figure something out because they don't have a choice. They, they do not want to raise taxes. They have a fairly small amount of people that live in the, you know, the state. I think it's 700,000 population. Um, and they've got to be innovative when it comes to dealing with the challenges that they have. And they're, they are probably been the most open and innovative of all the States right now to tackle their revenue. They're looking at it as a revenue problem. That's the way. That's how I believe what's what's taking place, along with the benefits of the ESG. I've, I've got my air quotes going on right now. The ESG kind of components of, of what we're doing, but they see it as primarily a way to make sure the kids can achieve the type of education that they want. That uh, you know the services on the roads that connect. They they see they have a saying in Wyoming that Wyoming is just one long main street. Um, you know, where a lot of towns are hundreds and hundreds of miles away from each other, but that's essentially the, the entire state. And so it's, it's a big deal there. So we'll see, uh, they've, they've passed some other crypto related legislation that was like first in the country. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're the pioneers with other, uh, Bitcoin focused, uh, legislation that actually impacts their way of life. I mean, think about it a month and a half ago, if I would have told you that multiple, Fortune 500 companies and the most profit, the most expensive Fortune 500 company, Tesla, um, would be buying Bitcoin 
as a store of value for their treasury, people would have looked at me like I had three heads. So me, and then same thing with the price, you know, um, you know, uh, ideas that I had like, you know, a number of months ago or years ago, you know, are starting to look more and more realistic. I would not be surprised if a state starts partaking in the upside of Bitcoin with natural resources they have to not just subsidize, but to fund a lot of their state um, programs. Taking a look at even Canada's getting into the play a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of local producers in Canada, um, because they don't have a market or they, they realize the market is diminishing for just sending their gas into a pipeline. They're becoming very entrepreneurial. They're having folks come directly on site, consuming that gas for long periods of time. They'll enter into a, you know, off take agreement at a set price and they're making more money off their gas, uh, instead of, you know, going into going into a traditional pipeline. So, I know early on the big, you know, because you guys bring those big shipping containers, and you know, it's it's quite a you know awesome site, really, because it's 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 kind of one of those bigger than life things. But it, there's a lot that goes into it, and so early on, the easy finger pointing was, oh. That's a you know that's a hog of energy, man. That's that's inefficient. Well, what we found out, especially in the last year, after a lot of a lot of studies were done in the last five ten years, okay. And what's happened is a lot of the studies started matching up, and what they found out. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm because I'm just going off the cuff here, off of the kind of paraphrasing and quick reading, skimming this, these studies that come across my desk is that the actual banking industry is more of an energy hog than Bitcoin is. is that, have you seen those? Have you seen this, this kind of this, uh, these studies that have uh, showing that the traditional banking industry is much more of an energy oh, yeah. consumer and hog than Bitcoin? Oh yeah. It's like on orders of magnitude higher. And that's yeah. not considering if you've got, uh, if you really want to go down the wormhole if you look at the U.S. dollar, right, then you just base off the U.S. dollar banking system, it's orders of magnitude higher, right, of all of the energy consumption. But then look what actually protects the U.S. dollar. Our, our armed forces out throughout the world, that are, that's part of that equation that, that we that, that should be part of the equation, too, in terms of like a CO2 footprint of the U.S. dollar. Let's, if we're going to get... If we're going to get very, uh, I, I just think it's very hypocritical of folks when they go down this road of like, well, Bitcoin consumes a lot of energy. Well, I mean, someone who believes in the monetary properties of Bitcoin, I think that, um, you know, wh what is the cost of protecting all the money on the earth if we, if we don't do it this way? Because really the way we've been doing it hasn't worked. I mean, complete destabilization in our country, war after war after war. Um, and so we'd say, hey, this is a third way. I just think it's just amazing how incredibly wrong leadership can be and how they continue to be enabled because so much of our leadership today is just doing quick finger pointing and that suppresses and holds back technology for five to 10 years. And I, I just pulled up one of the studies that um, that made me think of it because I, I remembered there was one quote that I just thought was absolutely hilarious that actually sums up what leadership has been over the last 10 years is that 
what they found out, and this is from uh, Cambridge University. So uh, we're going to say Cambridge would probably be, I don't know, it would be decent. Very familiar with that report. Are you? Absolutely. Okay, so you are. Okay, so what what they were finding out, and this actually had to do with just the storage of data is what, what this had to do with as far as what I'm reading on. And when they, what was it they found out was that, I love this quote, that um, basically cryptocurrency mining doesn't inherently produce extra carbon emissions because computers can use power from any source. To me, that sounds like somebody showed up late to the party and said, hey, guys, we forgot to carry the one. Like something so obvious that the finger pointer leaders that suppress technology for five to 10 years, like how does that shit get by? Like how does this, you know what I mean? Where there's there's really obvious stuff that seems to be allowed to just hold new technologies back. That really bothers me. Sorry, it just does. Oh, absolutely. It, It should because it's either complete ignorance or it's malicious in its attempt to discredit, uh, you know, Bitcoin as a monetary network. And, you know, I think either one of them, uh, either presented with facts or I think that's, what's the most kind of compelling part of Bitcoin in its growth in the last year. Right. Cause over a year ago or right around a year ago, right around this time, you know, Bitcoin price around four, like between like four and five thousand dollars. It was right, almost exactly when oil, you know, cratered. It was during that time where people were really freaking out. And there was a, a macro investor named Paul Tudor Jones who came on. He's very well respected in the you know kind of macroeconomic world. And he said, "Look, I'm an older guy. I've been studying this for a while." And there's an adoption curve that's happening that's similar to social networks, right? They, they call it a, a virality factor. And so the fact that Bitcoin never had to go through a public market, like think about this. Typically, who usually gets access to um, the biggest upside in investments, right? It's usually the, the people who play inside baseball who get access to either VCs or angels and they get in early and then they get to cash out when it goes public, Right. Well, right now, there's nothing that stops. And Bitcoin's the, like the inverse of that. Bitcoin is like for every everyday people that can buy anytime they want. And the pe- and the and the group and entities that actually have the hardest time buying it are institutional folks. And so, those are usually the people. If you look at the people that criticize Bitcoin, it's usually those people, the people that have gotten us in the trouble that we're in right now. So I'll let their record stand on. <laughs> where they've gotten us into the things. Hey, let's talk a little bit about if people are mineral owners quick. Not everybody out there owns minerals, so let's not get into you know war and peace about it. But for those people who know mineral owners or people who are mineral owners, you guys have a calculator at your homepage, Great American Mining, so gam.ai, gam.ai, it's uh, one of those mortgage calculators, except for it's a Bitcoin <laughs> calculator. <laughs> yeah, um, I would say it's more focused towards uh, producers rather than, um, you know, mineral rights holders okay. per se. Okay, that's why you're here is to clarify this for me. Okay. Yeah, but I think, you know, from a mineral rights holder's perspective, the, it, 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 it overlaps with this, right? Because if a producer is flaring, it means their money they're not getting money for those 
those molecules that are coming out of the ground. And one of the things I learned from the state of Wyoming when I dug into why they developed the, and, I'm, and, and you probably would know this about North Dakota, one of the primary reasons why they developed their flaring guidelines, I don't want to call them restrictions, guidelines, was not focused primarily on the climate-related stuff. It was focused initially because it was wasting a, a precious resource that would never come back. And that's why they put um, guidelines on their flaring, because every piece of that molecule that's going up in the air is just being wasted. And that's how there's, you know, that state, and I'm sure New North Dakota is no different in terms of being able to have the kind of quality of life uh, that, that you have. And so I, I think from a mineral rights perspective, uh, we've actually gotten calls from landowners in North Dakota um, who were like, hey, I try to call up producers and they don't care about doing this. And so I think, you know, from a, uh, a landowners and mineral rights perspective, I, I would love to have more of those folks uh, join kind of with us um, or, or just understand the technology more because there is so much gas that's being flared that is just, I mean, billions of dollars a year in gas being flared that could be going to uh, provide uh, you know, obviously money for those individual landowners and, and uh, mineral rights holders, but also in a lot of cases um, that, that trickles down into economies, um, whether the federal leasing percentages, et cetera. So. Hey, we're entering our sponsorship campaign and you guys are going to be a sponsor and we're a little sneak preview here, folks, that we're uh, crafting a press release here. Because uh, with with the sponsorship, you guys are actually going to pay in Bitcoin, and we're actually going to accept in Bitcoin. Uh, you know, a little bit of a you know symbolic publicity stunt, but also at the same time, no, this is legit business here we're doing. And so, um, kind of educate me and educate any other folks out there. You know, who knows? Maybe somebody like Amigo Pipe and Supply or Pipe and Equipment might want to take Bitcoin in the future and get an idea out of this, you know? So walk me through a little bit how this works and, you know, and and at the same time, hey, folks, uh, if you want to sponsor the Crude Life, you can do it in Bitcoin now. <laughs> so Absolutely. You know, there's two things here. There's plenty of services like uh, the Cash App by Square, Coinbase, I'm not as big of a fan with, but a lot of people use Coinbase. That's another way. Uh, there's an app called Strike, S-T-R-I-K-E. Um, that's another app to buy and sell Bitcoin. It's very easy. Um, you, you get it. You have a wallet that's on these sites, no different than a bank account. And you can send it to other bank accounts that give them your that give you their number. Uh, and you can also receive it because you have your own personal identity number. Uh, as well. And so it's very easy. We plan on, you know, doing this soon with you and kind of, you know, it's kind of a magical experience when you first uh, receive it because when you have your own wallet, these are on websites, so it's not a perfect analogy here, but when you have your own wallet, so there's like hardware wallets, you know, that fit on like a USB stick or other types of devices, that means you completely own that Bitcoin. When it's on a, on a, on a website, Typically, you're trusting that intermediary like a bank, almost like PayPal in that sense. And, you know, that's a good starter way to do it. But um, the first time I received Bitcoin 
on a personal wallet was magical. It was a little scary <laughs> at first, but it was also magical because it was once it was in there, there was nothing that anybody could do to, to take that away. And so, uh, you know, we're, we we want more people to be uh, become, you know, kind of useful with it. A second thing is with what's going on right now with uh, it, what what it looks like is early set of a kind of inflationary kind of uh, climate. I I would almost challenge you, Jason, to take a percentage of the proceeds that come in for sponsorships this year and put it into Bitcoin. And I would bet that your revenue would actually compound just by doing that, um, you know, by the end of the year. Uh, well, I'll take a cocktail napkin and a pen to that later when I'm at, yeah. I know many businesses that have over the last couple of years, and uh, they're very happy that they've done uh, that. No, on the, you know, the surface, that sounds like an intelligent move. So I just, you know, obviously the, the fear factor comes in about bills, and, and you just got to, you know, but it shouldn't be like that because you can, you can move the money around. That's right. So see, I'm, I see, yeah. I'm just, well, I'm, I'm answering my own yeah. questions here. Yeah. And there's a, you know, there's a whole economy around. So Bitcoin is considered, um, it, it, it's a form of property. That's how the, the SEC has defined it. And so, um, just like any other property, it can act as a form of collateral. And so folks who have been, uh, taking Bitcoin as a form of payment for a number of years are now uh, able to get Bitcoin collateralized loans. So you can put up a percentage of the Bitcoin that you own and receive dollars for that Bitcoin uh, back. So there's, it's, it's, it's fascinating what's happened in the last three or four years with adoption. Wow. Can't wait, man. This is a, this is a whole new world. It's, it's like when I got into gold and silver when I was a kid. You know, that was kind yes, of fun and trading, trading cards and comic books, it, you know, because at the end of the day, those were a commodity to me. You know, they were. I did it for the collection and tried to make money on them and apparently some very bad investments with some Beanie Babies I still have in my safe. <laughs> that, that, that investment didn't quite pay off, the Beanie Babies. Nope. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, hey, tomorrow, by the way, get, you ready for this guest we have on our work hard portion? Uh, the Crude Life will be interviewing the co-founder of Greenpeace. <laughs> oh, I love that guy. What's his name? What is his name? Hang on here. Let me grab it. Uh, I, st- I didn't mean to stump you there. No, I, that- I recently listened to an, an episode. I think it's the same Dr. guy. Dr. Patrick Moore. Dr. Patrick yes. Moore. Yep. He's yes. the- oh, so so I- you're familiar with him? Absolutely. I, re- I recently listened to an episode he did with a gentleman named Alex Epstein, who fuels and uh it was fa- a fascinating listen interesting well i can't wait to uh interview him i've interviewed uh quite a few climatologist scientists dr jerry ball is the one that stands out people that worked on earth day and climate science back in the 70s and uh, 80s and and are convinced that the whole thing is is um more exaggeration than fact and so it was, it was interesting, you know, it was through, through the years for me as a journalist. So this gentleman, interesting. I just love the fact that the crude life is going to have the co-founder of Greenpeace. On. <laughs> that just sounds, that just seems like something in a marquee to me. Like, yeah, that's what would be called a narrative violation right there. Wouldn't it? Is that a clash counterculture? Is that what that is? Yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah, dogs and but cats. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So okay. Well, cool. What? Well, uh, wrap it up here. What do you want people to walk away from? What? Uh, what should we end with here? Uh, I would just say that you know, r- right now is a, a great time to be able to uh, think about creating solutions. You know, uh, Jason, you mentioned before this kind of. There's a lot of talk that takes place. I think you were talking about there's a, a, a lot of talking points that get mentioned, and but there's not a lot of doers right now. And I think right now, Americans, uh, especially entrepreneurs, uh, people in the, in the patch, now's your time to be a doer uh, because the world's saying you can't, and this is the best time to do it. And so I, I would leave it with that kind of positive uh, spin. Just remember your task. Will only last if you don't take off your mask When the outside's chilly and the inside is warm You've been wishing you never been born All I can say, you try to behave and try not to get your mind blown Mind blown, your mind blown Show you something that's never been shown Music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Band. Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. The Crude Life, Play Hard, Work Hard, is sponsored in part by Blackwater Environmental is a family-owned company with over 10 years of on-site industrial experience, offering inspections, consulting, coding failure analysis, specification writing and coding application services, along with many other services for energy, oil, gas, and municipalities. Blackwater Environmental was started in Moorcraft, Wyoming, but has grown to a larger facility in Gillette, Wyoming, where they provide a better quality of service for their customers. For more information on Blackwater Environmental, check out their website, blackwaterenviro.com. That's blackwaterenviro.com. The Crude Life, Play Hard, Work Hard, is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. Trust First International Mineral and Land Services and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. Great American Mining monetizes wasted, stranded, and undervalued gas throughout the oil and gas industry by using it as a power generation source for Bitcoin mining. Great American Mining Company brings the market and their expertise to the molecule. Their solutions make producers more efficient and profitable while helping reduce flaring and venting throughout the oil and gas value chain. And if you're a mineral owner, Check out how much Bitcoin you could be making right now with your valued gas. Go to gam.ai. That's Great American Mining, gam.ai. The Industrial Forest. It takes an industry to build a forest. 
Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. Play hard, work hard. Now let's work hard. Well, good day, friends and listeners. Today we have a really wonderful opportunity to speak with Krista Castaneda, and uh, she has quite an extensive background in not only engineering, but also uh, in our legal system. And I'm going to let her tell you a bit more about herself. Good day. How are you doing today, Krista? I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, so um, I am uh, a degreed engineer um, and a lawyer and a practice uh, in the oil and gas industry, uh, mostly in commercial uh, disputes arising in the upstream sector for the last 30 plus years. Um, I um, have a lot of uh, background on on the things that I talk about um, relating to uh, the environment and to regulation, and now um, uh, the electric grid that failed in February of 2021. So happy to discuss any or all of those things. Oh, absolutely. Um, I actually, I kind of feel bad because that that's such a mild way of putting the amount of background <laughs> information that you have, or even what you do. <laughs> Apparently, for those listening, Krista is the go-to lawyer. She's not just any lawyer. She's the go-to <laughs> lawyer for some high-stakes litigation. And she actually had uh, a, she... It was a verdict in 2016 that actually gained national attention, didn't it? And you were inducted into the elite trial lawyers of 2018 because of this really big case. Yeah, it was a big oil and gas dispute and one of the largest verdicts in the nation. And I was the the plaintiff attorney um, and the lead lawyer for a man known as T. Boone Pickens, who is since deceased, but used to be... um, one of the uh, most prominent uh, businessmen in America um, back in the 1980s through like the early 2010s. Yeah, that's I I'm I I've been read I've been looking into a bit about you and I'm just I'm I'm very impressed. It seemed like quite an interesting case. It was. It was. It was a fascinating case. Took a long time to try. Very complex, but uh, um, in the end, it was. It was good to win it. How did you get into this specific kind of niche of the oil field and gas and uh, and law and in well, yeah. Yeah, great question. So I came out of uh, engineering school in 1985, prepared to go to work as an engineer in um, oil and gas. And that was one of the historic downturns. Um, You know, we hit these cycles where it's a boom bust industry and that was a bust. um, And it remained so for about six or eight years afterwards. Um, So I actually went into uh, designing computer systems to run oil and gas um, production companies uh, and did that for three years, decided I still really liked um, the challenges that the industry 
face, uh, but really hated writing code. And it was COBOL code at the time, um, which it, some listeners may know what that means, but it, it's, it's, it, it ran all the business systems and still does in some places, but it's a really, really old language. Anyway, went back to law school and uh, have kind of, you know, focused on uh, technical litigation ever since and, uh, and with a specialty in oil and gas technical litigation. And so does that keep you pretty busy then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That plus my side pursuits of writing books and running for public office. I had seen that you had run for the Texas Railroad Commission here this last year. Um, I I'd also looked into, by the way, you did a fantastic job with uh, the the campaign ad that I saw on the website. I, I thought that was so well put together. Oh, well, thanks very much. Well, there was an, an important environmental issue to run on, which is uh, Railroad Commission is our oil and gas regulator in Texas. And the, um, the, the, the amount of waste of the natural gas that's produced in the form of flaring, which is just lighting it on fire when it comes up out of the well, um, is enough to power every home in Texas continuously if we would only turn that natural gas into electricity. And so I ran really hard on that because it's been against the law for over a hundred years, but yet um, the railroad commission just allows operators to obtain permits to go ahead and burn that natural gas, which would have been enormously useful during the great freeze of last month. So how, how could they utilize that gas in, in a, a manner that would create electricity rather than burning it off? And why would that have not been done already, I guess? Yeah, great question. Um, the, the answer, at, at long and short of it is, it's economics. Um, you know, if it's cheaper for the operators to light it on fire, the Railroad Commission lets them do that, even though it's terrible from an environmental perspective and just a waste perspective. And it's against everything that, you know, our state resources laws are founded on, which is to prevent that waste. But the what they could do, um, because the technology has been out there for, you know, a long time, is use um, generators, natural gas-driven generators, to generate their own electricity um, and actually form microgrids that would not only supply their own electric needs, uh, which would keep their equipment running in these cold snaps like last month, um, but also they'd have excess electricity to sell into the grid, uh, and all of that electricity could actually be used to power all of the homes in Texas. Wow. How how easy of a transition do you think that it would be to to create some kind of a grid like this? Well, I don't think it's that hard. I think it just requires political will. And there are a few mm. challenges, like having enough gas in the right places to uh, drive the the generators. But it's certainly it's certainly something that the railroad commission and the Texas legislature could see to easily. Hmm. Well, I wonder if there will be anything that comes of it uh, since you brought that issue to everyone's attention this last year. Have you heard any any movement in that direction since then, I guess? Well, I do think that there is a hard assessment going on based on the electric grid failure and the role of um, 
natural gas, um, and let me just back up a minute. The reason the grid went down, according to this testimony that was provided to the Texas legislature, is that the power generators who rely on electricity could not get enough natural gas at the right pressures to drive their plants and generate the electricity. And the natural gas producers are saying that they couldn't produce enough natural gas and get it into the pipeline because their equipment runs on electricity. So when the electricity went down, the natural gas supply went down. And when the natural gas supply went down, the electricity went down. So they were oh, no. mutually dependent on each other. So um, there, there, there is legislation and legislative efforts going on to see how we can fix that whole system. Uh, so I do think there's going to be something to come out of it. I'm not entirely sure how... Um, global a fix it will be, but I'm sure some things will come out of it. So I guess out of curiosity, do you think that they're going to be taking a look at it, uh, specifically oil and gas, and, uh, and or do you think that it's going to be more of an integration with the rest of the different types of energy gen- generators, like wind turbines, for example, or solar powers? Because I, I, I had heard some speculation that they had something to do with that freeze-off, but largely it kind of did get placed at the feet of oil and gas. It did. Um, there there. There were early reports that wind turbines had frozen and that they were contributing to the lack of electrical uh, capacity. But those, I think, reports have largely been debunked. The wind and solar were only expected to contribute 5%, I believe, to the capacity in the winter months, and they con- ended up contributing 6 or 7%. Meanwhile, the big hole in our capacity uh, and our electrical, um, you know, the ability to provide electricity was because of these natural gas plants falling offline. Hmm. What about uh, the nuclear energy? I'd seen one article mention something about nuclear uh, energy failure, but uh, f- again, uh, it was largely placed at oil and gas. So I wonder if, what role do you think that played? So um, nuclear uh, had it, it, it did not it did not fail to perform at the same level that um, natural gas generated. Electric did, but I think one, one, we only have two plants and I think one plant did go offline for a period of time. I'm not entirely sure how much it contributed or why it went offline. Hmm. It's it, just kind of an interesting thing to look at, I guess, um, makes me wonder how much of a holistic approach will be taken when uh, trying to prepare so that this, something like this doesn't happen again, I guess. It's yeah, curious. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a great question. I don't know what the political will is to overhaul, you know, all of our agency overstructure, um, because that's what's actually going to be required. Okay. Well, okay. So aside from uh, the flaring issues, what, what was something else that you had seen or did you see anything else that was kind of a big issue when it came to uh, what is becoming known as the climate crisis, I guess? Yeah. So during my campaign, another issue that I really highlighted was the the intentional release of methane, not flaring it, not lighting on fire, but just simply what they call venting it to the atmosphere, which is actually even worse than lighting it on fire. At least you're consuming the methane, uh, which is, you know, many, many times, you know, 25 to 40 times 25 to 80 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Um, so it's, it's, it's better to burn it 
than it is to release it in its unaltered form into the atmosphere. And it's going on all the time. In fact, unfortunately, when you highlight the fact that people are flaring, then they tend to just put out the fire and still vent the gas, um, which is illegal as well. Um, there is no excuse for venting um, either intentionally or by leaks, yet it's going on all the time. Now, out of curiosity, <clears throat> excuse me, with it going on all the time, should someone be caught venting or flaring without a permit? And I'm assuming that venting does not have any kind of permit, you know, available to allow that. Am I correct? That is, that is correct. So should someone get caught venting or flaring, what kind of uh, fines or penalties would they be looking at facing? Well, that's an excellent question. And I think the answer for the environmental community is generally way too low. And it depends on, um, I mean, there, there just, there, there really aren't any meaningful penalties for, um, for being caught. And furthermore, there's not enough money put into staff and measures to actually enforce this, some of which could be done, you know, by remote sensors. Um, so, uh, and they, they tend to be prosecuted as, you know, administrative violations rather than health and safety violations. So the fines per day are even lower, um, when they stick, um, the com railroad commissioners themselves have had a pattern of overturning, uh, what the enforcement staff recommends. Um, so it's, it's not a good situation and there's no meaningful enforcement. Oh, well, yeah, that, well, that sounds rather precarious, I suppose, and uh, kind of makes you wonder what may be coming, I suppose, in the near future, or if anything will be coming since you are not holding that position. Uh, what, what would have been the first thing that you would have done had you been elected to the commission? I would have taken uh, these flaring exception permits off consent agenda. Um, and just not to get too deep in the weeds, but there are three commissioners and all of the exception permits that are recommended by the administrative staff go through on consent agenda. And that means that if all three uh, commissioners say yes, then there isn't actually a hearing held on it. I would have pulled um, at least some of the bigger uh exception permits from the consent agenda and had a public hearing on it. Interesting. Well, I guess there's a whole lot of changes all over the place. It'll be interesting to see if and where any of this, you know, goes, if anyone's listening to your ideas and, and might, you know, push that into being, I suppose, since these are elected positions. Um, I, I guess that would be one way of doing it. What is there something that you're doing? Is there any way that you're looking to try and create change from your position right now? Yes. So I've been say. doing a lot of advocacy work. I've been doing a lot of TV and radio and podcasts and written opinions on, um, in particular, the grid failure and how our policies contributed to the lack of, you know, energy reliability here in Texas. So I've been doing a lot of speaking on that just to bring attention to the fact that our agencies and their routine failures to enforce our laws actually did play a role in bringing the grid down. Well, and I, I, I remember earlier you said that you are writing books as well. Well, I have written a book. It's called The Last Trial of T. Boone Pickens, and it's about that trial 
um, that you discussed earlier. And uh, I've also done some podcasts uh, on, on, on that. So um, if people are interested in that, it's called the last trial of T Boone Pickens. And it's, it's a, uh, I, I, I hope it's appealing to people, not just because, you know, it's the story of a trial, but also because it's the story of, um, you know, they're teaching you women lawyers uh, and particularly in, in positions like I have been, um, you know, blessed to, to have these opportunities. And so it's a story of a woman, you know, fighting oil companies and winning. Well, and in honor of Women's History Month, that's kind of like a, like a, like a book club recommendation right there. Go well, check it so. out. The real I story. So. <laughs> <laughs> the real story of a successful woman on her way to make things right. Yeah, that's, no, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Um, I guess I keep having, I'm not sure entirely how to uh, phrase the question and it's kind of uh, a, slightly off from what we were talking about but I guess from an engineering perspective I remember a uh, commissioner ch- excuse me chairman Craddock mentioning uh, programs looking into the carbon sequestration and and whatnot and and trying to utilize carbon capturing methods down there do you see anything in Texas along those lines happening do you think maybe uh, that might contribute to a part of the solution I guess from an engineering standpoint yeah so um I, I I do think that there is movement afoot to do some things that are more environmentally sensitive, but I don't think it's being um, driven by the initiatives of our elected officials. I think it's because industry knows that they have got to do something different. You know, we you you your your listeners have probably heard about you know the calls by investors to um, have a, have a better um, you know they call it, uh, you know, global safety and environmental uh, initiative, GSE kind of, um, or greenhouse gas and safety initiatives. Depends on how, how, how the particular entity is defining their program, but they want responsible investment into companies that limit their carbon footprint. So I think these, these companies are really driving things forward more than the regulator. And that has actually uh, come up in conversation quite a bit lately is that the push from not only the public, but also from investors into having more accountability when it comes to uh, environmentally responsible practices. Right. Yes. um, Where do you think that that, I guess, is going to take things in the near future? Do you see anything coming of that anytime soon? I know that, uh, like I said, it's been talked about quite a bit. Well, I think, I think you're already seeing the, 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 some of the big companies take a lead on this and talk about the fact that they're taking a lead on it. And and in fact, I think they're starting to, you know, transition to energy companies, not necessarily oil and gas companies, right? Because they see our energy supply coming from, you know, v- different sources in the future than the current mix we have. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm very curious to see where all of this is is going to end up. There's so much going on right now. I actually right before uh, you had called, I was just looking over another article talking about the 21 states that are now involved in that litigation uh, about the Keystone XL pipeline. So it kind of seems like the entire industry is just in, it's 
in 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 a change movement right now. I don't, I'm not sure what word I'm looking for, but a transition, such yeah, a, an interesting and, transition. And infl- I think it is an inflection point. I mean, I think it's been going on for a while. I think it will continue to go on. Um, you know, I uh, the, when it comes to the Keystone XL pipeline, I think that the um, motives of the AGs who are suing over it are mainly political and not necessarily uh, problem solving. Um, but, uh, and I don't know that honestly in Texas in particular, there was a great hue and cry for the product that would be delivered by that pipeline because we have plenty of product to be, um, delivered here in Texas. So, um, it's, it it is interesting. Um, it is interesting to see where people are spending their efforts though. It, yeah, it certainly is. Well, and I guess you might have kind of a unique perspective on how, how people are feeling just because of getting to talk with your clientele, for example. Are there any concerns that you see that have been arising more so lately? Anything that people are kind of wary about in the future, re- near future, I guess? You know, most of what I spend my time litigating over is um, accounting for what's happened in the past, right? Um, I, I deal solely on the commercial side of things. And so I'm, I'm representing royalty owners against operators or I'm wor- representing working interest owners against each other or, you know, in the past I've spent a, a, a quite a bit of time representing operators directly. Um, so most of it is backward looking. Um, I, w- I would say this, I am seeing increasingly um, that uh people are litigating over the issue of accounting for this flared gas. Um, So I do think that that's going to continue to have some economic pressures. And then I'm just also though observing that um, there is, uh, you know, the, the investments have really fallen off in the industry, which plays itself out a lot in what I do because we value things in terms of future income streams, even though it's based on, you know, past, past actions, you try to figure out, okay, well, if they drilled that well or not drilled that well, you know, what's the net future impact? And and those calculuses are changing too. Yeah, that's, there's a lot of analysis, it's, it seems like that would be involved in, in, uh, in looking over that part of the industry. <laughs> so many moving pieces. Absolutely. Yeah, I- so I had, I also had a thought, I feel kind of maybe like I'm, I'm kind of directing this conversation. I was wondering if, is there something that you think that would be noteworthy to, to discuss something that you would like to, to talk about a little bit? Well, this, I mean, I believe in the power of the people who work in this industry to change and, you know, have and develop ingenious solutions for what faces us. I mean, when, when you look at, we've only had oil for 150 years, right? I mean, it hasn't always been with us and it has changed really dramatically over the course of those 150 years and, and, and gas the same way, you know, I mean, we don't do things the way we did even five years ago. Um, So, Things are constantly evolving, and I, I believe in the power of change and in the power of the people in the industry to find creative solutions to the problems that face us, including the problem of, of producing you know, oil and gas responsibly and limiting carbon footprint. And I also believe in the power of the industry to adapt to new forms of energy. I think, um, 
I think I'd like to encourage your audience to not get stuck in the past and not believe that's the only way to go about it. And, and unfortunately, there is a segment of the industry that does want to remain in the past and in the old ways of doing things and is slow to change. Um, but that's not the entirety of the industry. And I just want to encourage people to to do what they know how to do, which is is provide innovative solutions that can get us to a better place. Yeah, I, I, that's, uh, that does seem to be the, the way of things. I, I have heard, uh, leanings toward that direction more and more, especially with the younger demographic of, uh, individuals working within the oil and gas industry that kind of seem to be leaning more toward the more green solutions. So I, I would imagine there will be a, a bit of pushback, but it seems as though the, the industry is already kind of transitioning. Out of curiosity, um, and I don't know if you would if you would have any insight or if you would know anything about this, but out of curiosity, should we pull back from the oil and gas industry as much? And um, how do you think that would affect the environment on an internal level? Um, kind of a random question. I apologize, but I mean, I, as far I, as like pressure buildup, even I, I think I think I know. Um, I think I. I, I mean, I, I don't. I, I'm, I'm not going to speak so much to operating characteristics of, you know, uh, reservoir depletion and all of that if we're, if we're not producing as much, because I think that's going to be dependent on where you are um, and what you're dealing with. But I, I will speak to this. I do think that, that to the extent we transition away from oil and gas into a different mix of energy, um, that it needs to be thoughtful, um, including one of my big concerns even during the campaign was the uh, abandoned infrastructure. We've got to figure out what to do about, you know, infrastructure that's, you know, multiple times more likely to leak product if it's not tended to and who's going to pay for the costs of tending to that infrastructure because we have not provided for that in the past. So I think that we've got to have a thoughtful transition and we've got to be thinking about what's next, you know, um, that it's just, somebody's got to be doing that. And right now I'm not seeing a holistic approach to dealing with those issues. Hmm. Okay. I, I appreciate you uh, obliging my question. That was kind of out of left field, I think, but, um, but no, yeah, I, I agree. It'd be, it's kind of interesting to, to consider all of the issues that may not be taken into consideration as we're trying to move toward a positive uh, solution to things. Um, it, kind of goes back into something like a like a self-fulfilling prophecy almost you know yeah working so hard so that something doesn't happen and end up creating a bigger problem it's kind of interesting and i don't know nearly enough uh to to even speculate on on theories so thank you well, for sharing i'm happy to i'm happy to <laughs> provide what information and insight i can i don't claim to be an expert on on really any of these things but i'm somebody who's spent a long time thinking about a lot of these things and I have some background to be able to hopefully give a, a, a relatively informed opinion. Right. Well, and I appreciate the insight. I, f- I find it to be absolutely intriguing. So much knowledge. I'll be excited to see if any of the conversations that you started on your campaign trail and then since then, even with all of the podcasts and, and, and writings that you've been doing, it'll, I'll be curious to see where that goes. Well, thank you. I, it's it's always interesting, and there's always new questions. So uh, um, I'm happy to try to again speak up on what I know. 
Well, wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to speak up with me today. Uh, if any, In the future, if you have any big updates or anything that you would like to share, absolutely please feel free to reach out so that we can get you back on to talk about it. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. All right, my friends, that was Krista Castaneda, and she is a brilliant mind out of Texas, the founding owner of uh, Castaneda Law Firm. She ran for the Texas Railroad Commission this last year. She's got an engineering background as well so much. I hope that you guys were able to uh, enjoy that entire interview. And if you did find the content intriguing, interesting or riveting in any way make sure to go and check out the rest of what the crude life has to offer exclusive interview industry news environmental innovation at the crudelife.com Music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River With Jason Speece. Thank you for joining the program today. You know, I, I come from an oil background. My family's been in the oil and gas industry for 60 years. I, I think the thing with the younger generation is the younger generation has pretty much bought into the climate change phenomenon. They really believe everything that people tell them. We just want to thank everybody that has been so supportive of us, and especially you, Jason. Without without your help, I don't think our event would be as successful as it is. So I, I don't want to be real critical of them because being a guy who's, you know, dad has several small businesses and, and coming from that sort of small business background, I get it. I mean, the, the, the operators here were put in a real bad position by the state of North Dakota. I'm glad that we've got people like you to pay attention and bring us information on stuff like this. Prices can't go any lower for services. I, I, they're, they're too low right now. I, our margins are in the single percentage point if we're lucky, and we're not lucky that often. You're exactly right. ESG is becoming more and more important to shareholders. I can speak for my 20 companies. They take it very serious. It makes perfect sense, and I thought you had a really good show last week. Jason, I love your inquisitive questions because you you ask important questions that that lead to the most important truths. Hey, this is Kevin Kramer representing proudly the state of North Dakota United States Senate. I'm Jason Spies, who's like the best energy interviewer in the world. No one does an interview like Jason Spies. We all like living the crude life, so. <laughs> the Crude Life with host Jason Spies. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Crude Life Daily Update. On today's episode, we talk about Women's History Month. Every March since 1987, Congress and U.S. presidents have designated this month as Women's History Month. This year, the Crude Life celebrates and honors their accomplishments and vital contributions in history 
with interviews and stories that center around women's experiences in industry. These women are not only modern day leaders, but they are truly historic as well. Today we feature Myra Vargas with Amigo Pipe and Equipment. We have been around since 1994. I joined the company, I would say about six years after I graduated high school, and we've been in business till then. Family owned business, me and my dad. What do you guys do? Heavy haul, hot shot, we third party rig moves, pipe hauls, pretty much any transportation need, we can, we can help you out. My dad is a forklift operator too, so he actually is in with tearing it apart, loading trucks up and go, load and go, load and go. But it's amazing what they do. Went out there on my first rig move, and I was like, wow, I'm permitting all these loads, getting trucks going, load go, and I don't even know what half the stuff was. So when I finally got to go on the rig, I was like, wow, I was amazed. I was truly amazed of how this process is. Because he was a diesel mechanic for so long, and then he sure got his company going. And then once I was old enough to join, that's when we started. I started the heavy haul division for him. And um, he was a diesel mechanic for them, and they asked him if he wanted a lease on a couple of trucks. So he leased on a forklift and a flatbed. And from there, we were working for them. And then when the owner of Brit Trucking passed away, the new owner came in, or the man that took over, and he did away with all of our leases. So he deleased all of the owner operators. So then he was kind of upset and like, what am I gonna do? And then I was like, well, let's start our own. He goes, well, if you can do it, let's do it. And that was a challenge. So once we started it from there, we just kept going. To listen to the full-length interview with Myra Vargas with Amigo Pipe and Equipment or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. Please join us all month long as we celebrate Women's History Month here at The Crude Life. From the staff here at The Crude Life Week in Review, my name is Jason Spies, asking you to always remember, energy is more than an industry, it's a way of life. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. Trust First International Mineral and Land Services and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. The music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Band. Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. The Crude Life with host Jason Speece. So there's still people without power as of this morning. You know, right now, I think there's very limited driving out there in West Texas. They're generating about 5% of the power today uh, in, in Texas. Sensitive microphone because I just poured a glass of water because we don't have running water here yet. I mean, this, is, this has been uh, a very trying week for a lot of people across the state of Texas. Uh, there are, and, and let me just say this, I, I'm sorry that so many Texans were let down by their grid. 
On the phone talking with us today, Chairman Christy Craddock of the Texas Railroad Commission. We have roughly 470,000 miles of interstate and intrastate pipe and pipelines in Texas and roughly another 500,000 miles of gas utilities uh, lines wow. in Texas. So we have a lot of, and gathering lines are in that 470,000 miles as well. So we have a lot of pipe in Texas. We're the largest pipe state by a six. It, it is a very challenging day in Texas right now. Uh, the grid operator is projecting that nearly 3 million homes in Texas uh, are without power today. Uh, and, and there's- It's our snowy here in Lubbock again. I mean, I don't, I thought it was supposed to be sunny today. So I'm from Odessa, and that's a big part of my district, but I also represent, uh, in addition to Hector County, uh, three other counties in the Permian Basin. So Andrews County, Hector County, Ward County, and Winkler County, but uh, all, all in West Texas, all in the middle of the oil patch. You know, when they close the roads down, we can't transport that, that those, uh, those materials. And so we can't get the product to uh, where it needs to go to get refined so that we can either one, heat our homes, or two, uh, have fuel for our vehicles. Um, with pipelines, that doesn't really come into effect. You know, once the pipelines are laid, not much can stop that that crude oil or uh, natural gas from getting from point A to point B. They are so far behind the curve on getting the storage, the battery storage, uh, in place to be even be able to handle a, a, the, you know, the most minute degree of storage for a case like what happened in Texas. And now, it, you know, there's gonna be a spotlight on that. And just an incredible impact. We saw nearly 30 gigawatts uh, come offline yesterday. Half the gigawatts went without water since Saturday. On Friday, the Railroad Commission uh, took quick action. I know you recently had Chairman Craddock on. We'll have water for until 5 p.m. and then we'll be off again for the night. On Friday, I sent a letter asking the Public Utilities Commission of Texas to rescind its order authorizing uh, these uh, generator, these generators or these providers to increase the rates. You know, I don't know that's true, but I don't think I'd want to be in a hospital in Dallas, Texas on, a, on life support and know that wind energy is going to be my source of keeping that machine running, right? J.P. Warren reporting from uh, Houston, Texas at 9, 12 a.m. Uh, I don't even know what day it is right now. I think it's Wednesday. Uh, we ran out of water yesterday. Well, I've had maybe three hours of sleep in three days.